The battle of wizards and warriors continues with iron swords. The evil wizard Malkil will take the shape of the earth, wind, water, and fire. Farewell! The fate of the world is in your hands! You're listening to the Piercing Wizard Podcast, and I'm your host, Ryan Willette. I'm a professional body piercer with 20 years experience, I travel around the world teaching technique and safety classes, and I'm a member of the Association of Professional Piercers. Listen in as I talk to my friends and colleagues about our industry so we can all stay sharp. Hi everybody, how you doing? Thanks for coming back to another episode of the Piercing Wizard Podcast. A few weeks ago I asked some people on Patreon what kind of content they'd be most interested in in hearing on the show. And one of my most frequent requests was to have more uh, subject matter experts, people that can like really run down an issue from, from top to bottom and really talk about it with a lot of science and a lot of logic. And I thought there would really be no one better to invite on the show for an episode like that than Brian Skelly. Uh, Brian Skelly has kind of just always been there uh, for, for me and for a lot of the industry as far as information. If I have questions about sterilization, jewelry material, anodizing, disinfection, most of the time my first question is going to be to Brian Skelly. Uh, been piercing for decades, has been on and off the APP's board of directors over the years, um, frequent face that you would see at, uh, at conferences both inside and outside the U.S. And uh, today I'm going to talk to Brian about mill certificates. My episode a few weeks ago with Pablo Perlmuter kind of started the conversation of the, the APP's new jewelry certification program, and Brian is, is obviously one of the people um, pushing that, that project forward. Brian's been part of the ASTM for uh, quite a while, the American Society of, of Testing and Materials. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it, because I think a lot of people are pretty lost on this subject. When it comes to jewelry... Um, there very much is like a, a trust factor of it. You trust that these companies that are uh, these these giant names in the industry that they're selling good jewelry that you can believe in that you can uh, that you can trust. And it is appropriate to to kind of blindly trust some of these companies, but the whole concept of trust but verify really comes into it. There have been companies where maybe part of their jewelry line is APP material compliant, but not all of it. Um, so what's the difference? What's a good quality material for body piercing? What's a safe quality material for body piercing? We all know things like steel and titanium and gold, but there are so many subcategories within those materials. 316 LVM, what does that mean? Uh, F138, what, is, what does that mean? Like, what do these uh, certifications actually mean? Which ones are important? Which ones uh, do you want to look for? Which ones do you want to avoid? And how do you actually verify that what they're saying the material is, is actually what the material is? So it's a, it's a very deep hole that you can go down. Um, it's a long episode, so strap in. By the end of the episode, my hope is that you understand this, this subject a little bit more. Um, but if you're like me, I, I don't think it's a subject that you're ever going to fully understand. So that's why people like Brian, uh, Pablo, and, and lots of others in the industry are, are so important because they're the nerds and they're going to do the, uh, a lot of the work for us. So let's go ahead and get into that conversation with Brian Skelly in just a minute. You know that I've always got new uh, stuff for you that I want to promote. I've got a new video all about VCH piercings available at patreon.com slash ryanpba. Really helpful, especially if you're a piercer who's not already doing uh, genital piercings, vulva piercings. 
uh, this VCH video can can probably help you out with some tips and tricks. Uh, I narrate a, a VCH doing it from the top down into a receiving tube. I talk about um, different things you can do to make jewelry transfers easier. And there's a, a moment where the client flinches. I talk about you know what you do in a scenario like that, and you know how how can you recover from a scenario like that. So go ahead and check that out. You know that I've got some classes available. Uh, I'm going to be doing a, a full class of um, live workshops, and I'm going to be doing my uh, ethical sales strategies class in the Chicago area on Monday, September 5th. If you're interested in getting registered, signed up for that, you can go to my website at ryanpba.com. For now, let's just go ahead and get into this interview because it's a long one, and uh, if you stick around the whole way through it, I'll be back a bit more at the end of the episode also. All right, so for the people who maybe haven't met you before haven't interacted you uh with you before how would you want to how would you want to introduce yourself to someone who doesn't know you yet well hi i'm brian um brian skelly is my last name uh i have uh, many years of experience piercing and part of what i was most interested in when I started piercing in the late eighties and early nineties and started my studio in 92 was checking up on uh, all of the claims and uh, hopes that we had in the piercing industry for uh, materials and for products that we use. Just wanted to dot my I's and cross my T's to make sure I was using things safely and mm -hmm. to make sure that uh, as a, a pioneer in the industry, among few others at the time, we were all in a state where there was quite a bit of risk. Yeah. And what I was identifying were the sources of risk for me in my practice and how could I possibly limit those risks and perhaps even eliminate them. Yep. So the first thing I started with was uh, jewelry because I didn't even want to put something in my body or my customers uh, unless I could be as sure as possible that starting with the material itself, that it was safe. And there were certain um, leaps of faith that I had taken uh, initially when I was looking into piercing and thinking, wow, this is a cool idea um, about the safety standards that were already in place. And when I started looking into it as a piercer, I didn't really have the tools uh, to test the materials to see if it was safe. I was able to test um, with a local jeweler uh, whether the gold was 18 or 14 karat. That wasn't too complicated. You know, a little scraping, uh, a little acid and one melts faster than the other. Voila, this one melted faster. So we know that it has other things in it. Uh, you know, it, it's lower quality than the other in terms of the quantity of gold. Um, but for steel and for titanium and niobium and other materials that came along after that, um, I wasn't certain and there weren't really easy tests. And for a lot of those materials, especially um, materials that are considered um, implant materials, biomaterials, I was fascinated by what went into making them in the first place, right? Was it a uh, material that was stumbled upon? Like for example, certain materials uh, were used for implant after they were discovered causing less harm than other shrapnel during war. Yeah. I remember uh, a story about like Lexan or some sort of acrylic or something where, where, you know, fighter pilots and bomber pilots were getting it like in their eyes and embedded in them from explosions mm -hmm. during the war. So they were like, Oh, 
let's try this for implantation. Yeah, yeah. So polymethyl methacrylate, yep, PMMA. That's a, a neat one. And it still has some uses as bone cement uh, and still has some uses as uh, ocular and other implants. Um, of course, one of the other aspects that I found is not only were there um, a huge group of people working on the chemistry side, there were people working on the engineering side, and there really had just become this sort of nascent field of biomedical engineering right around the time of my birth, you know, right in the, in the 70s. So the biomedical engineering as a career was just coming out. And I was lucky enough that one of the universities that I went to had a program for that. And I was able to get textbooks from people and trade and look. And uh, it, with a lot of things, when it comes to piercing, you know, you get this giant tome of reference and there's 10 yeah. pages that are directly applicable to what we need. Mm -hmm. um, but with that and with asking good questions from people who um, had the ability to look in deeper and find where the answers were, I was able to get a little bit more uh, of a clear idea what went into making materials that are safe to go into the body. Um, basically, you know, some obvious stuff like the, the very lo lowest level is making sure it's materials that aren't already known to be toxic. <laughs> yeah. And then if it is made with materials that are sensitizing or irritating, um, like for example, uh, a lot of steel alloys have nickel and we know nickel is irritating. It has to be bonded in a way where the nickel isn't releasing into the system Yeah. Uh, or with titanium, for example, could be bonded with vanadium and the vanadium should be limited, um, and I started thinking, well, what would be, what would be the safest possible choice? You know, what's the purest, simplest thing? And can we use that as jewelry? And mm -hmm. so, I, you know, come up with, you know, pure gold. Well, yeah, you can, but it's really floppy and soft and you're ruining right. the jewelry pretty quickly. Um, yeah. You know, historically, you've got a lot of precedent for very, very pure gold um, where it's almost barely alloyed um, and it's work hardened for, for um, Asian, Indian, whatnot, uh, piercing works pretty well. Platinum, another option, uh, certain forms of glass. These have historical precedent. So a lot of materials I researched uh, were both from the historical record, anthropological, and um, the fascinating historical ways of dress, people's man manners of body adornment for thousands of years. So we, we knew certain materials were already non-toxic to a certain degree, and there are a number of chemical tests that can be done. Um, notably the ISO 10993 series, which is what's used today primarily to identify safe chemicals. And then there's a series of steps, you know, tighter and tighter, more regulated and more regulated tests to get to the point where you're, you're going from something that we think is safe because we have some good ideas about it to something that we know can be in contact with the unbroken skin for a while. And then we know that it can be in contact with fluids and whatnot. And then we can know that it can be in contact with mucous membranes. And then after that, we know that maybe uh, it is going to be in contact with broken skin, or uh, then we learn about its, you know, mutagenicity, genotoxicity, basically all these tests that can be done to narrow and narrow and narrow the focus to the point where we're pretty darn sure that the most people can get the most benefit from it. So that's what the, what I was aiming for benefits. Yeah. Rather than the a couple of things for, for me as like a, a mere mortal, a, a piercer with, without a lot of like scientific uh, education, you know, like I didn't really do a lot of university education and things like that. So I have more like high school science class kind of broad strokes knowledge when it comes mm -hmm. to a lot of the, the scientific aspects of it. And um, for me as a piercer getting into it, I understood that like, hey, you can buy a lot of steel jewelry from companies. 
And then, you know, maybe some, some have titanium and then you start to kind of look at it and realize all these different companies sell all these different products and it gets really like dizzying. And um, I, I like hearing about when you were researching with like old textbooks and things like that, because it really reminds me of the days when um, you were reading like Gray's Anatomy and you were just trying to glean like that five or six or maybe 10 pages of, of good information out of a whole book. So um, having someone like you who, who put in that work and has that kind of scientific background and everything, your, your general like curiosity leading you towards like, well, yeah, I know people pierce with it, but why is this one maybe better than this one? Um, I've sat in a lot of different material classes at, at conference. I've tried to learn wherever I can, you know, from people right. like you and from other educated piercers. And um, sometimes the technical aspects just like creates a buzzing sound in my head and I don't really fully understand it, but it's good that. to kind of narrow it down where it's like, yeah, there's body jewelry, but you know, you maybe want to focus on trying to eliminate some of the harmful materials in it. And then once you can eliminate that, then maybe start to think about the quality of craftsmanship that goes into making jewelry with that material. And you kind of narrow it down and narrow it down and narrow it down. And then hopefully at the end of that journey, you end up with a, a really nice, safe piece of, of body jewelry. But right. for someone like you, who is kind of seen as like sort of the gateway for some of that information, you know, like um, bringing it back a, a couple of years, like what led you to, starting to hunt it down. Cause I know that you're involved with like, you know, ASTM standards and things like that. I think a lot yeah. of people look, look to you to kind of decode, demystify some of the, the testing and stuff like that. So what led you to start to kind of seek out the organizations, like going right to the, the, the root of like, who is certifying these materials and testing these materials? Right. So for me, uh, to determine whether or not the jewelry was safe, uh, it was a big hurdle to begin with because there were a lot of trade secrets. There was a very small pool of companies that were making jewelry and none of them wanted to open up about uh, their sources. Uh, they didn't want to tell any specifics about it other than it's good enough, we're content with it, nobody has any problems that they're reporting. Um, and it's um, basically that, that was the faith. You know, we, we were trust, but I wanted to go beyond the trust and verify as much as I could because there are independent standards for these and independent standards that could be, for example, national level regulations for uh, toxic materials. Uh, mm -hmm. you're, you're not supposed to have a certain amount of toxic materials and, and um, items that are in contact with the body for consumer goods, uh, for anything from a bracelet to your clothing. You know, the standards for those there start with the sort of general consumer safety standards that we are all pretty familiar with. Almost everybody's heard of uh, the uh, basic uh, Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, which is uh, things are required to be safe and effective, both mm. safe and effective for sale. And people have a lot of presumptions with that. Uh, and they're willing to slide on what they consider safe because it's effective for um, making money. Yeah. <laughs> so being able to see through that, um, first, you've got the level of the, the umbrella consumer safety standards. But then underneath that, you have uh, national standards bodies that are voting on how these uh, standards come to play. I mean, this is everything from how much a pound weighs or how long a meter is or how long a second is. You know, these, these standards bodies are made up of 
stakeholders and scientists and university professors and people who, who care about things being accurate so that all things being equal, we can eliminate technical barriers to trade, right? So that being said, science, you know, math, everybody in the world should be able to know what two plus two equals, right? And uh, two plus two doesn't always equal four, especially in chemistry, but, you know, we, we want to be able to educate people not only what the baseline is in terms of standards and safety, but in addition to that, sharing that information in a way that they can reproduce it, right? That's kind of a whole idea with standards. You, with science, you, you take, a, take an idea and you try to test it and then you share that and then other people say, oh no, I do, don't agree with that. <laughs> I'll try it my own way. And they test it and either it confirms or denies your, your idea. So what I was looking for was, okay, we have this general law and then how to apply it, who, who are the standards bodies and who actually feeds into these standards bodies. And for the US, that was the ASTM, that's the American Society for Testing Materials International. Now, I didn't realize it wasn't an international organization. I, I thought it was just American at first, uh, but really it, it comprises more than 100 different countries working on it. And then there's ISO, uh, which is from the Greek ISOS, uh, like all things being equal, like an isosceles triangle, uh, which translates different languages, different ways, but essentially it's the International Standards Organization or International Organization for Standardization. So you know that like, you know, a, a material in the U.S., if you classify it as this is this, what, 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 what this material is in the U.S., it's that same material in whatever other countries, once you agree right. upon the standard. We've all agreed upon the standard. The standard can be a recipe. It can be a standard for terminology used in that recipe, which you're going to refer to in that recipe. Like if you don't know, if you don't know what an ounce is, if you don't know what a gram is, you have to, re to refer to somewhere else, you know, it, it's simpler to bigger, you build from bits. Um, so we have ISO that sort of covers the world. And then we have national standards bodies that are part of ISO that vote in these standards that can be used to, for every country everywhere. And then we have the ASTM International, which works in conjunction with ISO. In fact, the technical committees, they're the same people. They're the same committee. So what I did initially was start bothering people on these technical committees to find out, so what is it that you do, right? Are you actually like a place where I could send my stuff and get it tested to make sure it meets their standards? And they say, no, that's not what we do. <laughs> what we do is we write the standard based on what we determine to be the way the recipe should go. Right. And for example, they're, they're writing know, the cookbook. They're not cooking the meal. Exactly. And in fact, some of the people in the cookbook writing process are people who are part of these laboratories who do testing. And they, yeah. they say, this is the way we do testing. And then five other labs say, well, we do it sort of like this, sort of like that. And then they all come with an agreement of how that test should be performed. So everyone gets the same results every time. So that's the whole standardization idea. It's like everybody's got their own equipment. Everybody has their own means of doing things, their own routine, but they all agree that, okay, we're going to take a piece of this. We're going to cut it this way. We're going to look at it. We're going to dip it in this amount of this acid. We're going to see how fast it dissolves. And then what's left, we can do this and this with. And so you, you've got a standard action set, right? Mm -hmm. You have a standard guideline, you have standard uh, specification, but most of what we deal with is specifications for piercing, right? Because we're talking about this recipe as the specification. So once everybody's agreed on how you do all the things that you need to do to make sure it's actually good, you know, how the taste test is done with the cake and how you actually bake it and what it should look like and how crunchy it should be and whether you should have chunks in the middle or whatnot, um, you've got this repeatable recipe. So now you've got <laughs> one of the, the curious issues that we ran into is, again, I'm all for 
eliminating technical barriers to trade, giving everybody the information, giving everybody the standards. And, and in fact, I've encouraged many, many colleagues and friends to join the ASTM uh, because, well, the first and simplest reason is as a member, you get access to the library of standards, which individually, if you want to just pay for one, cool, you can buy a PDF or a, a printed copy of it. it. It adds up pretty quickly if you want to buy all the standards necessary to really understand it. So it's better to just become a member. And then in fact, you can you can sit by and listen in on the conversations. And I've just been a fly on the wall for, for a while uh, trying to be in a room with people who are way smarter than me and more, um, more understanding about different processes and whatnot. So I can just understand better and better and better. And then occasionally I can speak up about something but most of the time with the ASTM and ISO committees, I absorb what's coming in, I figure out what I agree with, and then I get to vote too as a member. So I joined the ASTM after talking to ASTM members and ISO committee members. They basically said, well, if you want to know all this stuff, you should join and then you can participate. So that's what I did. And I joined, I believe, in 95 or 96. And I encouraged a lot of people to join um, Pablo for example, uh, John Johnson, uh, our late Rick Frith, um, a number of other colleagues have, have joined just so they have wider access. I've encouraged jewelry companies to join just so that they are stakeholders. They should also be able to look and have the standards instead of buying the one standard that they need bit by bit. Yeah. Plus they can participate in the process. And what's cool is some of these jewelry companies now they're like, well, now I need to have testing equipment because now I know that not only can they fool me by selling me materials from a country that doesn't actually abide by those standards because they can, well, certain certain countries out there, um, they're not part of any, any legal agreement for yeah. uh, materials. So they can sell materials and put their stamp on it and they could be substandard or even falsified. Well, that's so why, that's why I wanted to talk to you. Themselves. That's why I wanted to talk to you and get, information about meal certificates and what they are because like myself as a piercer i would consider myself to be fairly well experienced um but as a body piercer you know like i can push a needle through someone i can pick out jewelry from a reputable manufacturer but like honestly even with all the access and all the the people i've talked to and classes i've taken if somebody wanted me to be like start from square one and tell me if this thing is safe. I would be pretty lost without, um, you know, that without the APP being there, people like you, people like Pablo, people like Christina that I can kind of like reach out to and be like, can you, can you decipher this document? And I, I think that maybe not all, but some jewelry manufacturers might be in that same boat where they're like, I know how to run this milling machinery. I know how to design something. I know how to set gems, but you have to kind of put that trust into a, a supplier and a company when, when you order something where it's like, I want this good quality material. Um, like, what are you actually getting? If you're not a metallurgist, if you don't work right. in a laboratory, you really have to depend on people who know how to decipher these documents because a hard lesson that I learned through, through my experience on the board is that it's not a, a malicious, malevolent thing with the jewelry companies, but some of the suppliers they deal with might want to just kind of like sell them stock and they'll, they'll give them right. documentation that says, yes, it's this, or yes, it's this. But without having someone who knows how to read those documents and decipher them, you can't really be sure that you're actually buying what you're requesting without all of that scientific background. So it gets really dizzying for, for somebody right. like me, especially. So what is a mill certificate? So, right. When, right. when I started and I mentioned, um, so 30 years ago now, I, I wanted to 
ask the companies who were making the jewelry I was buying from, um, do you meet this or that standard for your jewelry? For example, do you meet ASTM F138 for the wire that you're buying? If you do that, then I just want some documentation for my attorney because the, the, the thing I started out with in piercing, uh, at that time, there, were no, there was no uh, professional liability insurance for it. There was no, uh, like even the slip and fall coverage, the kind of stuff that you could get for, for just your, your business and your jewelry um, or for theft and whatnot, just wouldn't cover it if I couldn't tell them what it was. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I can't put a, a dollar value on uh, steel or titanium unless I know exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. Because if it's something that they, <laughs> they claim it's one thing and it's actually something else, for example, if the titanium that's used is intended for golf clubs and submarines instead of surgical implants, mm-hmm. then it's not as valuable yeah. because it's not as pure. And especially since it's now an off-label use and it's something that it wasn't even intended for. So the, the thing that I started with that I thought was most useful was just asking politely as much as I could. And I would go and visit jewelry companies. Um, I tried to get invited so I could come in and see what they were up to. And not because I wanted to secretly, you know, take pictures and inspect the tags on their metal, but I really just wanted to understand, okay, so how are you controlling to make sure this is safe? When you buy from your steel mill, the company who is buying an ingot and, or, or bars and milling it down into smaller bars that you can actually put in your machines and turn them into, you know, librettes and eyelets and, and barbells and whatnot, how do you control to make sure that they're not selling you whatever's cheapest? Because mm. as a jeweler, not a medical device manufacturer, you are not going to get FDA surprise inspections. You are not beholden to the same laws and regulations that a dental implant manufacturer would be. So they can sell you lesser quality materials and get away with it. And there's no consequence for them other right. than you're going to be, you know, like, Angry and, and not to not to knock anyone in the industry, but uh, even probably the largest jewelry manufacturers, it's not like they're going to have a laboratory wing where they're able to do their own independent testing and verification. So that's actually one of the things I was mentioning before when I encouraged all these jewelry company at least have some member of their staff to be part of the STM so they have access to the standards library and whatnot. So that if they just need to know what a test is being done or if they're being offered a new material or whatnot. A lot of them actually have purchased certain uh, relatively superficial testing equipment. I mean, they're not, they're not you buying equipment that digests the jewelry and, and tests every single molecule, um, but they're they're buying things like um, high def um, high def X ray fluoroscopy machines where they bounce off the surface and they can tell you uh, what the spectrum of the chemistry of that material is. And basically, if it pops up that this titanium's got uh, say, for example, tungsten or lead or iron or you know, something that is a pollutant in it, it'll say, reject this, and they'll send it back to their, their uh, mill. So okay. we have a certificate from the mill who takes the big chunk of uh, raw material that they purchased. It, either you have a mill that's a foundry that's taking basically just dirt and dust and, or, and melting it down into some sort of solid product, whether it's a bar or a rod or whatnot, and then milling that down. Or you have a company that's, that's making the foundry that's building stuff out of raw materials. And then they have a test that's going on during every step of that process. Mm-hmm. So in a country where the FDA could surprise inspect them and 
in the situation where they're purposely making an implant material, they're testing each step for purity, right? And for mechanical properties and for um, basically all the benefits that you want and getting rid of all the disadvantages every step of the way. So then that certificate from the foundry, say for example, uh, there are several big ones all over the world, they'll give a certificate to the mill and the mill could be a distributor at that point. They could just be buying big rods and turning them into small ones and then selling those ones with their own certificate attached to the original foundry certificate. But what you've got that traces all the way through is each melt, each time they melt the metal, you know, from dirt into um, a, a bar or a big brick or a rod or what have you, or wire, you've got a number that's associated with that melt. We call it a heat number. So that heat number is like a tag that's melted into the thing. And like a batch number, number is right? Every step. Like a, like a batch number, sort of? Yes, the batch, the batch of that heat. And then you have different batches, for example, where you, you bought a bunch of rods from that that are, you know, like 10 inches <laughs> by, you know, uh, eight feet long or various sizes. And then they... They then have companies that turn those down into smaller products or make wire out of them. And so they've got batches for each of those actions also. But they have to trace everything because each of these actions where they're taking this big thing and turning it into a small thing, what do you have is cutting equipment, grinding equipment, and that can include impurities also. Yeah. So then you have all these other steps where you have to inspect it along the line and make sure you don't have like grit and other things embedded in the surface. And then you have to use some sort of passivating process, which is like a, a an acid, like nitric acid, where you burn off all the little things that could burn. Mm-hmm. Basically you're using an acid that will eat the bad stuff and leave the, that would be stuck to the surface and leave the, the rod alone. And at the end of it, you go through uh, ultrasonic inspection where you vibrate the thing. And if there's a, like a chunk inside it that or a, a void bubbles, whatnot, you cavity. can find that along. You can uh, do eddy current inspection where you're doing electricity through it to try and find embedded chunks of, of or you know cracks or what have you basically disadvantages that when you're machining it later you have stuff that breaks mm-hmm. um, or embedded impurities that you, you've got the outside which is like a, a tootsie roll where you, uh, a tootsie pop where you've got you know everything's good on the outside but the inside's something different um depending on how the melt is done you can end up with bubbles you can end up with carbon and other things melted in there so once you've gone through all that, at the very end of it, you've got a, a report that has every single chemical test, every single mechanical test, you know, all the microstructure tests, the, the tests that, that cut it and test to see if the crystals are growing the right direction and the right size uh, because it cooled at a certain rate, right? So the crystals of the metal elongate in a certain way, and you don't want it to be all absolutely crazy with lots of different sizes of chunks. You want it to be very smooth, very homogeneous. So you've got all these tests that are done, which are very simple and they're rigorous and they are regulated. You know, you, you want a factory to have the ISO 9001 good manufacturing practices. You want it to be able to be inspected by your uh, local um food, drug, and, and uh, health authority. You want it to be able to be um, sanctioned or shut down if it's doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly corrective actions by the FDA in the United States, for example, um, are, are saying we caught something that's impure, change this and this. They're helpful. Okay. They're, they're, they're wanting to ensure that the, to assure that the supply lines continue to produce safe biomaterials. Because 
frankly speaking, you know, lots of people get in accidents and lots of people need parts put back together again, far more than people are getting ear piercings. Um, so the, the supply of safe materials for repairing people's hurt parts yeah. is much more important than us putting shiny things in hurt parts. Um, but that, that's the thing. So even manufacturers now, they, they get the, the heat number, that original batch of the milk, they trace it through whatever process it was made into rods or wire, right? And then they keep track of that for each batch of jewelry that they can make. So some newer jewelry companies started out with that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Some older jewelry companies are catching up. Um, early on, there weren't very many jewelry companies at all that even paid attention to that. They were buying whatever metal was at a good price. Yeah. Um, they were angry when I asked because how could I possibly question them as a young whippersnapper? And um, I, I got a lot of backlash from that for many, many, many years. I'm and sure that, you know, with, with our industry, hmm. you have people that kind of fill this spectrum from like te- technicians to artisans and, you know, it kind of, it'll show in uh, what kind of information they respond to and what kind of information they take and, and push forward into the community. And sometimes if they fall mm-hmm. more into the artisan category, it can be a little bit like, how dare you question me? But even when I was starting out, like I, I came into this later than you, you know, I started out in like the mid to late nineties when a lot of those questions had already been asked and a lot of that work had already been done and, and pushed forward. But it was still very confusing because you could order such a wide variety of jewelry and not a lot of people could tell you if it was safe or not. They could tell you if like clients responded to it well, or if it sold well, or if it like, you know, lasted over time or this or that or whatever. But I think it was still like, well, you just trust this company because they've been around for a while, but there was, you know, you'd hear terms like stainless steel and surgical steel or like three sixteen LVM steel and all that. And then The, the more I started to learn and realize that a lot of these terms are just thrown around as a way to almost keep people from asking questions. Like they throw yeah. around some sort of technical information where you're just like, I, I don't even know what that means. So I'll stop asking questions, but right. it's a brush off. Once you start to learn a little bit more, you realize that some of those terms are not the right terms you want to hear in relation to body jewelry conversations and everything. So when I started hearing ASTM, ASTM, you know, F-138, F-136, it it was like, yeah, but does it really matter because this person's saying 316L and this person's saying, you know, G23 or whatever, Um, and starting to learn like, well, when they say this, that kind of almost disqualifies them in a way because this this is information that's outdated or maybe isn't safe to the level of these other companies. So it's really helpful to have documentation that you can fall back on because if someone asks like well why is 316l not good enough you can fall back on those tests that say well this is what f136 is and this is the testing you need to be able to call it f136 or whatever so all that testing starts to kind of click into place but i still honestly don't understand very much of it well i I think a lot of it's a sort of a a pushback from jewelers because they don't want the they don't want everybody to have access to safe materials so they don't want everybody to just start a jewelry company yeah because the more people know about what to get and where to buy it i mean if you know what to buy and what standards you're looking at uh, a couple of taps uh, of a finger on thomas's register or on uh, your favorite search search uh, on, on the internet you're going to find hundreds of vendors yeah. um, and then it's up to you to find one that's reliable but the the main thing is there's there's a lot of vagary right first is the trust us it's great and then the second is, well, trust us, it's steel. It's the kind of steel used for this. 
that should be fine. And so if you trust at that point, a lot of people will just keep going. Well, we know that it's stainless steel that it should be, but because it meets this standard. Okay, cool. Do you have a certificate to validate that? Yes, here's the standard. Okay, I didn't ask for the recipe. I asked for a certificate showing that it was tested to meet that recipe. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, then they give me a chemical test from a lab third party that's not from the actual melt. So what I can tell from a chemistry test from a third party testing company or from their XRF machine is that it doesn't have poison on the surface (laughs) and that it has the right amount of the right chemicals at the surface that I shouldn't reject it out of hand. Cool, but that's still vagary. I still need to know, did the manufacturer who actually melted it, melt it at the right way so that all of the benefits of having a material that's already tested for biomaterial applications are in place. Because if it's just the chemistry we're meeting, we've got microstructure problems that could be present. We have uh, impurities that could be present. I mean, Mm -hmm. frankly speaking, most of the chemistry tests I see these days are so superficial that they really give us very little information. So we we start with the vagaries where companies just want to just say, don't even, don't ask. It's good enough. And then we get a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And then we finally get to the point where sometimes they're still skipping over the important part because they don't want to reveal their sources. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we've set up with the APP is the Association of Professional Piercers Body Jewelry Verification Program. So we can get the companies to disclose this in a private manner so that they have, if they need a non-disclosure agreement because they have a material that they want to keep to themselves uh, as a, as a, competitive advantage for them, that's fine. We can then be privy to it, check the backstory from the cradle to grave, basically from the moment that piece was melted from dirt and rocks to the moment it went into their machine, we know that that machine uh, got fed a good piece of metal. Now, what they did during their processes at the jewelry company could mess it up too, Mm -hmm. but it's not likely. Most of the jewelry companies these days are doing processes that aren't going to embed a lot of extra additional problematic stuff to the surface. Mm -hmm. Still want to clean your jewelry. You still want to passivate that jewelry. In fact, I would really like the jewelry companies to do that for us. Many of them are are very good about cleaning the residues and choosing products to polish with or to tumble with that aren't going to leave a lot of residues that are Mm -hmm. easier to clean off. Polishing compounds stuck on your jewelry and all that. Right, right. Or some of them pen tumble with stainless steel for titanium and other materials that are, they're, you know, mixed metals. So you end up with stuff that sometimes could be even in a threaded hole and could corrode because you've right. got two metals and then you right. end up adding a weak acid alkali through saliva or other body fluids. And then it starts getting this galvanic corrosion going on, which you, you would have metals that otherwise would have these benefits of being corrosion resistant. But when you mix them because they have these residues, you can end up with un, unsuspected problems. Yeah, residues left behind from the from the manufacturing process of the the jewelry, like taking the raw material and then turning it into body jewelry requires all these different machining processes and, you know, maybe some chemicals involved or other things. And if you're not cleaning the jewelry, like some companies uh, for for me as a studio owner, I'll get in jewelry from some companies Mm -hmm. and it'll be flawless, like right out of the package. It's fine to just sterilize and and use, but other things might have a little bit of a hazy residue or something on the surface. And you'll see that when you anodize or ultrasonic or steam clean that you'll get crud that comes off. Mm -hmm. So one of the standards for cleaning that I like jewelry companies to apply is the ASKIM F86, 
So F86 is a standard for uh, cleaning and preparing surgical implant materials. Uh, it's also for marking if you ever want to laser brand the, the something, a logo somewhere hiding in the uh, non-wear surface or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that's, that's measuring the type of particulate and how to remove it and whether you're going to do that with electropolishing, uh, for example, or anodizing for reactive metals or with an acid bath. Um, and that talks about detergents. It talks about sonicking. It talks about steam cleaning. There, there are variations on, on how to do those standards. So jewelry companies can benefit from being part of ASTM uh, because they can then look at, you know, I buy this material at this recipe. I perform these machining operations at this speed so I don't heat it up too much and change the properties. So I maintain the benefits. Um, I don't mix other metals in with it. As, you know, I limit the amount of, of uh, other things that could be pollutants. Um, and then at the end, here's how I clean it off. And so I could provide jewelry and a sealed pouch to a customer and I could provide them with manufacturer's instructions for use that actually say, don't touch it, sterilize it, it's ready. Mm-hmm. Just like our needle companies. Um, needle companies are held to FDA and, and other uh, trade standards, medical standards, if they're also making medical needles, most of them are. Uh, and they do, you know, they buy a specific grade of, of metal for it, which is an ASTM, uh, you know, like uh, 304 steel grade range, but there are specifics for that. Uh, and then they use specific practices for the type of grinding, the type of coolants uh, they use for, for all of that. And then they do a passivation process in acid or electropolishing or something along those lines. And then they may use a coating for a lubricant that also has to meet a specific standard for mm-hmm. uh, medical device for lubricant for needles. Um, and again, it's just knowing the recipes and following, yeah. and then they can give you a manufacturing instructions for use, which tells you exactly what you need to do. Um, for nowadays uh, in medical devices, there's a huge push to make sure that every manufacturer for everything from the simplest pair of hemostats uh, all the way to uh, even the gauze that you sell for having full instructions for use for what it can be sterilized and whether it can be sterilized by steam, dry heat, ethylene oxide, et cetera, uh, how it can be cleaned before its first use. And if it's reprocessable, how it should be cleaned in between, mm-hmm. because there's some substantial damages that can be done with just guessing and using right. the wrong detergent for reprocessing. Well, I see that all the time when, when I teach, you know, I, I teach like say practices pretty frequently and mm-hmm. it's really just like a concept of read the thing and understand if you're using the thing correctly, because a lot of people misinterpret or like, mm-hmm. you know, they, as a, like to use disinfectant as an example, if you're comfortable using this one that has like a blue top on it, and then you switch over to this one that has a green top or a red top, it doesn't mean that you can use them the exact same way. You might have to use them in completely different ways. So I think with any process you have in your studio (laughs) is read the documentation and and understand all the different stuff that goes into it. Because if you don't have like a huge background in science and all that stuff, it's really difficult to discern the differences between some of these things. If you could step it back just a little bit, um, not that I'm, I'm not using really steel in my studio. I'm a titanium and mm-hmm. gold studio primarily, but to use steel as an example, when I heard things like 316L stainless steel, and then you'd hear 316LVM stainless steel, and then mm-hmm. it was F136 stainless steel. My kind of simplified understanding of it is, you know, 316 would be a grade of steel that has, what is it? Low carbon. Is that the L? Right, that's the L. So what you've got now is you've got AISI standards. This is a, mm-hmm. a totally different standards organization. Yeah. Um, so the AISI uh, has standards for steel and iron. And this is 
the 316 series, there's mm-hmm. 316.00. There's a whole bunch of different kinds. And there's actually a new universal numbering system that's used for that. But what, what you saw was there were there were three levels of information you were given, right? It, it, you ever seen the explain it to me like on five videos where people, they, they uh, will explain the same thing in three different concept levels where they'll explain it to a, ch- a child of five years old. They'll explain it to a high school student or a college, a new college student who's studying the thing. And then they'll explain it to a, a, a PhD or someone who's an expert in the field. And mm-hmm. you get three, the same thing, but three different, significantly different perspectives just because of the level of information you touch on. So what, what you got is first they said it was steel, surgical steel, medical implant steel, whatever. Then they actually gave you a standard. Okay. Now we look up as I, AISI 316, 316L, right? Okay, we have the chemistry now, we have the mechanical properties. Now we know that it's a low carbon steel, which carbon is actually pretty irritating to the body. And if you want to look in history, we, we want to find out who started using it in materials. I'm, I'm guessing it was probably Chanby in England, who was a surgeon who was experimenting with lots of materials and finding this out during World War I, World War II um, for prosthesis. And so initially, it was just whatever steel was the cleanest they could get. And then what needed to happen after that was they identified there were benefits and there were disadvantages. So what did they do? So we have a VM, which is a vacuum melt. And I talked well, about- Well, I don't want to wanna rush too quickly because that's that's one thing where I want to try to build up my own understanding as, as we converse. Right. Like hearing a 316L is like a very simplified standard. Right. And then hearing the VM and like, me having to understand just like the basic metallurgical process and like what mm-hmm. happens at a foundry. And when you say the VM, the vacuum melt part of it, yeah. it's a, it's a cleaner manufacturing process because if you have open air melting, you would get dust and debris and all kinds of other impurities well, in it. Yeah, so it, it, it carbonizes too. So yeah. basically the, there, there are certain things in chemistry that have to be done in a closed circuit right? Mm-hmm. You have to remove the impurities so that, for example, if you're, if you're soldering certain things, you have to add certain gases so that they don't explode. <laughs> like titanium, if you try to weld titanium in a normal environment, it's going to catch fire. You're going to have lots of burns on the surface, even from small things. But if you put it in a noble gas like argon or something that's non-reactive, you can zap it all day long and make all these little clusters of things that we're using for jewelry these days. Um, so let, let's go back to this. The, the first level of information is just the general idea of steel, right? And we know steel is a kind of um, iron with maybe chrome and nickel and a couple other things. And we found the standard, which is the AISI, which is an automotive engineering standard, which if you look at the history, there was no standard in, in that AISI. AISI doesn't have anything to do with implants. Then you found pioneers in the surgical implant field that said this corrosion resistant thing probably could be safe. Then they try it, usually on animals and then on willing humans, if it gets past certain levels. Uh, and then they say, okay, well, it has these benefits, but we need to remove these things that keep corroding or keep debriding or keep uh, shedding when they, they're, uh, there's friction. So they create a need based on uh, a need for a new alloy, a need for a new processing system that has a higher purity, a higher strength, a higher uh, a tighter crystalline structure so it doesn't break apart as easily. Basically, the idea is this is a general idea that works. When we take this version that has low carbon, it works better. Then when we want the benefits of something that can last longer, we want it to be even more purified. And then here's the standard for how to do that, that mm-hmm. now stakeholders and experts 
have agreed upon is how to consistently achieve that result, especially if you're in a, a transactional sense going to be selling it. So yeah. now if I'm a foundry and I know that Chanby came up with a way to make steel uh, with his own money and, and with the uh, the benefits of uh, the health system, putting money into it, somebody, somebody discovered a way to do this thing. Now I can take the standard and I can start making it. And then if people want to buy my stuff, cool, I can start selling it. If mm-hmm. I'm in the same, if I'm in the same country as where I'm selling it, mm-hmm. that's easiest. It's super, super simple. If my foundry is abiding by the same laws and beholden to the same uh, like surprise inspections from the health departments, et cetera, uh, the FDA agency um, as where I'm selling it. It gets more complicated when it's another country. So then we have to have trade agreements between the two countries saying, if I'm buying stainless steel from Italy, which makes some really good stainless steel, then they're going to follow the same standards for this as England or as US or Japan or 28 other countries. Right now, we've got a, we've got a couple of trade standards out there that are pretty functional uh, that protect against people just putting their stamp on it and faking it. Um, or doing their best and not doing it well enough because they're not yeah. actually practicing good manufacturing practices or they have accidents. Um, main, main thing is just understanding that the more you learn, the more you realize there are consequences to not knowing uh, what the benefits and what the disadvantages are. And yeah. so it's better to rely on people who've already done the testing. Mm-hmm. And then you want to know, okay, what, what testing really matters. <laughs> yeah. And then that's why they, the ASTM and ISO standards matter so much, because when you actually see how much effort goes into ensuring that these standards are accurate mm-hmm. and are kept up to date and are eliminated when they're no longer needed, um, or when we find something didn't work at all as well as we thought it would, yeah. uh, that's, that's just a big deal. So it, it's just kind of like that general thing all the way up to the recipe. Yeah. And then the next step is, is it actually following the recipe? And sure, it, 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 are they claiming it follows the recipe based on their best intentions? Even if they are, is it in a place where if I buy from them, is it going to be, um, is there going to be any legal consequence if there's a problem with it? Sure. So that, that kind of leads me into the, the next thing that I want to talk to you about. You know, so if you have uh, a standard that started out as something, just as an example, like a 316L, and then there's an additional standard that's the vacuum melted, and then that's a, a, eventually into more of like a precise standard, like the ASTM F136 standard of right. what's in it, how it was manufactured, how it can be used, what can it, what it can be used for, having that specific stamp on it in a way. Um, it gets really confusing as a body piercer when you have vendors that are out there that are trying to say, well, it's a safe material. It's a safe material. It's titanium, but they're not being specific about the kind of titanium. Sure. Um, how do you, how do you start to wrangle all those different companies making claims, but they don't have a certificate that you can actually verify? Because I know that it was pretty, pretty confusing for me when you would hear like, well, such and such was made in, China or Asia or wherever, and they're not following the same standards in that country for manufacturing. So maybe their certificates aren't going to have the same kind of due diligence behind them. How do you, how do you handle dealing with a source material that can't really be verified easily? Yeah. So, so that's actually pretty straightforward because you can't prove a negative. What we want to do is, is work with what we can prove. So we, we can prove if the, if the company is buying materials from a foundry that is located where they're making their 
their jewelry or is located where they're selling their jewelry, right? So for example, if I'm going to have a factory in Hong Kong or in Shenzhen, and I want to sell to the United States, I'm probably going to want to buy materials from a distributor that imports them from the United States. Because that way I know, for example, like Stryker or any of these large medical device manufacturers that do some manufacturing overseas, I'm buying from that batch of metal that's already being used for medical implants that are already related. And that distributor also has agreements with FDA so the distributor itself can be checked. And some of these factories overseas for medical devices also have agreements with the FDA. So they, they make uh, a, a certain percentage of their products for the US, for example, or for Europe, and a certain percentage for the rest of the world. And it's, it's for example, you're going to buy Chinese steel uh, or Chinese titanium to sell into China because they won't necessarily accept the standards uh, from, from importing materials. And uh, the main idea is it's easiest if you can buy the material locally, so it matches the local laws, and then sell it locally, right? So if, I'm, if I want to buy, um, if I want to start selling titanium jewelry in Italy, it would be awesome if I could set up a little shop and buy Italian titanium, or wherever my shop is, I'd bring the Italian titanium in, make it, and then I send it back with a certificate in Italian that says, I bought this Italian material, I brought it here, I used only this material for this batch, here's the batch, I sent it back to Italy, super easy to keep track of. There, there are some medical devices that have to be tracked that way, and we're not tracking piercing jewelry the same way because we're not beholden to that. So we've got certain companies that play it fast and loose. They buy what's cheapest, like for example, they may accidentally buy um, Russian or Chinese or some other some other um, melt of metal that may be perfectly fine for Russia or for China and meet their standards. But because they're not part of an international trade agreement that allows equal legal consequences for things that are substandard or falsified, if people have problems with it, it's now the, the distributor who bought that material who's completely liable and the purchaser of the material from that distributor who's taking on the liability so, for example, if my jewelry company buys um, material that was made on the moon and there's no trade agreement with anybody on the moon right now, um, my, my regolith jewelry is awesome. But if I, anybody has a problem with it, you know, my, my moon distributor and it, it, whoever brought it down for me, you know, they're going to be responsible for it. The moon folks are just going to laugh at me from their cheese thrones and the... The, the people, all the people who bought from the, the moon, moon metal distributor, um, you know, they may sue them, but that company may just say, you know, we bought it from the moon. They gave us assurances, but, right. you know, who are you going to sue? You're going to sue the moon? What are they going to do? Right. You know, go up there and go up there and get your money from them. And again, I don't I don't see it as malicious. I just see it as kind of the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. So yes. if there are it's jewelry companies thing. out there that are hungry to break into that kind of APP market, that APP bubble. Like I've, I've seen companies pop up and then disappear within a year where they're like, oh, it's APP material because this random company sent us a piece of paper that said it was this material. But when you actually research that piece of paper, there's nobody that can prove that it's that material or that that material was made under the right, you know, manufacturing conditions or anything. So yes, and when it's you're easy to get fake papers. Yeah. And that, that doesn't mean that you need a certificate. Okay. And then quick Photoshop certificate. There you go. Sure. Yeah. And it's not like the, the jewelry company is like a, 
a villain twirling a mustache or anything like they ordered something and then maybe they didn't do a certain level of due diligence or whatever, but it's not, it's not a malicious thing because like when, when a client buys a piece of body jewelry from a studio, they put their full trust in that studio and just say like, well, the the studio says that it's safe jewelry. So I'm going to trust that it's safe jewelry because I trust this, this studio. It's the same kind of thing when a, when a studio buys jewelry from a manufacturer, a lot of times you don't question it. You trust that they're providing you with what they say they're providing. And it's all the way down the supply chain where even that jewelry manufacturer is buying material from maybe a company that bought it from a foundry and further back and further back. But when you get to the the base of it, if you're manufacturing in a different country, that's not abiding by following something like an ASTM standard. They're not being malicious when they say like, yeah, this is perfectly fine for, for medical use, for implant use, for whatever, because in their country, it might fully meet that standard, but it doesn't mean that it's the same standard that we're operating with as an American piercer, a European piercer, a whatever piercer. What's terrible to me is technically it could be perfect, Yeah, but there's no trade agreement for the consequences of right. the problems. So you're yeah. taking it upon yourself and your company as the the distributor of the metal, as the person who buys the metal, as the person who then deems it suitable for body piercings to sell it as that. And then as the person who buys it as a piercer, who deems it appropriate based on, you know, you've got three levels of people now who are responsible for a bad decision mm-hmm. that they're making based on trust. But there are, there are historical precedents for problems with importing materials back and forth where uh, the the foundry just throws up their hands and say, yeah, we made a mistake. Okay, well, eat it. And uh, next time we'll give you a discount or something. Yeah. And they don't actually do any, um, they're not going to do any reparations for people who have problems with it. it for, for example, in my own company at Piercing Experience, when I decided that we were going to um, document every piece. So I, I took every piece of jewelry out of my display case and just put back the pieces I had documentation for. And bit by bit, I put back more and more and more as companies documented their products. And this was between 96 and 98, mm-hmm. because we started the first jewelry review committee in the APP that uh, was my, my first term on the board at that point too, as treasurer. And I was bit by bit putting jewelry back in the case, but there was a lot of jewelry still in my box <laughs> of like, really would like to put this in the, the, the case. And then what I ended up getting was material certificates that were not able to be validated yeah and there were quite a number of companies who just plain wouldn't give me certificates Mm -hmm. Uh, there were there was one particular company that only had certifiable material for one product they made so i ended up getting like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gem nostril screws in titanium uh, because that was the only thing that they made and they weren't the best um, but this is actually why neometal (laughs) started making um gemmed ends for their barbells because I started cutting those nostril screws down. I got 20 gauge nostril screws, cut, cut them down and fit them into the 16 gauge barbell shafts, the larger ones. And I sent them to Neo Metal. I said, make this because mm-hmm. we're selling the crap out of them. Yeah. <laughs> and they were awesome about making it. Um, th- but there's a lot of little, little cute stories like that. But the, uh, the bottom line was I was able to send jewelry back to some of the manufacturers because they also went back to their metal sources and said, Hey guys, you told us this was okay. Yeah, And here's an article showing just recently that this foundry in this country uh, <laughs> produced unstable material. It was non-conforming. They sold it to this company. This company is one of the companies you sell from. Yeah, <laughs> It could have polluted our batch. 
And, and some of the companies uh, were able to recoup that, uh, but I have still about $30,000 worth of uh, retail jewelry sitting in a box that I well, cannot validate. <laughs> and I really would like to make a sculpture out of or something one day, but uh, just don't have You know, I, I've joked, I don't know if you're like a Game of Thrones fan or at least the books, but um, whenever I take that bad jewelry out of a client and upgrade them. I, for a while I was thinking about keeping it all and then like turning it into like an iron throne of like bad body jewelry or something. That would be hilarious. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it's kind of like if you, if you use like a restaurant as an analogy, um, the, the meal that they put on your plate is going to have so many other steps. And when you hear that whole like farm to table and, you know, where does the food actually come from? Like, that's the same thing that you want to think about with your body jewelry. Like, yes, the body jewelry comes from a manufacturer, but like, where do the raw materials for that manufacturer come from? And for, for a mere mortal, someone like myself that can like ask a company, uh, please send me your meal certificates, because that's just part of what I did through my APP membership application was I didn't want to just send invoices for the companies to the APP. I also wanted to ask right. those companies, can you also send me your meal certificate just so I have it? And like, I did it in this place of like, oh, I'm going to be this really smart, careful piercer. I'm going to have the people send me these meal certificates. Just like mm -hmm. if I have a chemical, I'm going to have a, a safety data sheet in my studio. Precisely. But the problem is that I don't know how to read a goddamn meal certificate because they send me a piece of paper with just all these numbers and words and logos sure. on it. And I have no idea if like if if it's genuine, if it's been photoshopped or or falsified in some way, and even if it wasn't, I don't know what any of that information means. So right. how do people handle a, looking at a meal certificate? And do you think that they should just default to someone like an industry expert, or do you think that they should actually be trying to to learn how to read this themselves? So for me, going through all this was to clear my conscience because I want piercing to be fun. Yeah, You know, I really enjoy the, the interpersonal reaction with clients and I just don't even want to have all these like doubts in my mind about whether my gloves are, are clean enough. I wear sterile gloves, you know, whether my needle is the right material, whether the antiseptic I'm using is good, whether the jewelry that I pose in them is going to cause problems. I really just want to narrow all that down. So I just have fun with client. So should piercers have to learn this? They should probably learn enough not to get fooled. Mm -hmm. um, this is what the verification program was for so that we can both work with shy companies who don't want to just give their material information out to everybody. Cause generally speaking, um, some companies are very open about it and they show uh, all of their certificates on their website. Uh, and you'll see a lot of information. And so what a lot of peers will look at and they go, okay, is it got the right amount of titanium and the right amount of this? And they're looking at the chemistry and they realize the chemistry is just the tip of the iceberg you know, how it's put together, how it's melted. I can give you the ingredients for a cake, not tell you exactly how to make the recipe. You have a general idea of how a cake's supposed to go. You're supposed to put the things together and mix it up. You didn't know to crack the egg beforehand. You get eggshell in it. You're going to get a different result. Or if you don't know that you don't put the salt in until after it's resin, you know, you get a different sort of reaction. But th there's lots of, lots of different things that go into the actual doing part. So the chemical test is part of it. But what you're seeing in a certificate of tests is who did it, who bought it, how much they bought, what they bought, <laughs> when it was, what the heat number, the, uh, the batch of that melt was from, um, whether that melt came from a country that is part of the trade agreement. 
that we, we want. So you have a source, right? And then also on this, you're going to have what specifications does this melt uh, meet? What has it been tested to work? Like you can't go back and recursively test a melt to prove that it's safe for F-136 mm -hmm. for titanium. You have to buy the melt with the certificate that was tested during the process yeah. because there are certain steps that you'll, you'll not be able to reproduce because it's not liquid, you know, and it's not, mm -hmm. you, you, you know, the part where you're removing magnesium chloride from the titanium sponge, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to reproduce that because that's happening in a vacuum and totally. there's another magnesium part where it's being chloride melted again. Right. So there, the, here's the thing. There's, there's things that happen during the melting process of yeah. stainless steel or titanium that are highly toxic <laughs> or slightly irritating and you don't want either. So you want to make sure that you don't leave bubbles of things that don't belong there in it. Yeah. And you don't want it to be chunky and you don't want it to be, you know, otherwise impure. So this is the thing. A piercer should know that a full certificate of tests, you should have contact information for who actually did the testing and you should be able to easily contact that and you should yeah. have a, 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 you know, even a, a phone number, email, website, something like I can go, uh, one of the, the companies that is easy contact uh, and I, I can look, I can see, okay, you know, Bob's body jewelry is making this and Barbara's body jewelry is making from this company. And wait a minute, this heat number is the same. Wait a minute, this, everything's the same on this. Hang on, they just changed some things. And I can look and I can call up and I can say, hey, um, to the, the foundry, high quality control department, um, I see a heat number this that was sold to a distributor here. Mm -hmm. And Bob's body jewelry and Barb's body jewelry claims that they're using it. Um, did this specification actually meet F-136 for titanium? And the, the quality control for foundry will say yes. And then I'll say, okay, it shows that this certificate was sold, part of it was sold to, um, to, to Xander's wire mill who's milling wire, right? And so I'm guessing now, okay, Bob and Barbara's jewelry companies both bought from Xander's wire mill. So now I've validated the, the certificate of test from the metal. Now I know the metal is okay. So now what did they do to it? <laughs> did they buy it from a, a distributor, a wire mill that, that made it into the size they want? Okay, so now I find that both of these companies are buying from the same distributor. Cool, no problem. Now I need to see what they bought, how much they bought, and that also has to have all the contact information. So when you get a set of certificates, you should also you should also get a certificate for the wire company or the the mill of whoever. Yeah. So the mill is responsible for giving you kind of like the, the 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 middle person between the foundry and the manufacturer. Right, because most manufacturers aren't going to buy, um, you know, giant ingots. Yeah, so they're the buying partially refined stock. Right, right. Things that have been ground down into smaller sizes that are manageable. And they're going to buy quite a bit of it. You know, they might buy a half ton of it at once. Um, so you want to see that they bought a quantity that's not just a sample size. You know, mm -hmm. they didn't buy just four bars. You know, it's not two pounds of material. It's right. a substantial amount of material. Okay, right. so now I see Bob and Barbara probably are distributors for the same jewelry company. They just put their own labels on it. That's cool. No problem. All right. But they're also buying from the same distributor. So that I now I get this. Now, do Bob and Barbara both want to share that they're buying from that distributor. A lot of times they don't. They scratch out the name of the distributor on it and they scratch out their name or wherever they shipped their metal to, uh, which is, you know, their, their uh, secret 
uh, machine shop that's doing their librette posts for them. All fine and good. Buck stops there, we can't verify it. So if they're shy, they could go through the ABP verification program. They could do a non-disclosure agreement where it's not just an individual who's doing it. It's the organization who's validating that, yes, yeah. this is appropriate for the membership to use for initial jewelry. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, your piercer can say, huh, okay, I, I can see the certificate that they're sharing publicly. I can see some of the information, but that last little step they're shy about. Cool. I understand they have a trade advantage yeah. by not sharing that because not everybody wants to share where they're getting the jewelry made mm-hmm. or who's making it for them or whatever. And that's okay. Bob and Barbara may have the same machine shop that they're using. They may not even know each other, or it may mm-hmm. be the same company with two different brands. Main thing is you want to make sure that at that point, the machine shop's not uh, making a lot of other things with materials that could get mixed up and that they're yep. following ISO 9001 good manufacturing practices, which means that uh, I get a rod of metal that comes from that heat number. It's got a tag on it, or it's got a, 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 a laser engraving all along it that shows that it comes from that heat number. So now I can still trace every rod before I fade into the machine that it's Bob's or Barbara's, right? Mm-hmm. And Bob and Barbara bought it from Xander, and that Xander bought it from, say, Perryman or one of the other major companies, Time at uh, Dynamat, what have you. And you've got now good assurance that the piercer is going to be able to buy from Bob or Barber's distribution, even though they're made in the same factory <laughs> from either name is okay. Better yet, if Bob or Barber just decides to share everything and just give you all the documentation, I can call up and find out that their machine shop is a precision machine shop that right next to the line where they're making the uh, librettes, they're making dental implants and they're fully withholding uh, beholden to FDA guidance, uh, and they could be shut down at any point for doing anything in their entire factory that doesn't meet the standards yeah. for medical implants, which is something that I found out one of our jewelry companies that we use quite a bit does. So, you know, I, I'm very happy to know that they're using an ISO 9001 certified facility. They're also making things, uh, well, the, the company that does the making is all beholden to this. So mm-hmm. does every piercer need to go through that? No. Does the verification program need to do that? Yes, because if we if we leave that gap with that little leap of faith where Bob and Barbara are keeping that last line of protection against their their uh, jewelry being um, really disclosed, we don't know if that actual manufacturing facility is just they're they're taking Bob and Barbara's expensive fancy metal and keeping it for themselves. And then taking metal that has the same chemistry that you can use an XRF device to test the surface and is superficially similar. It's G23, but it's not F136, right? It's it's within the same ballpark. It has the same chemistry, but it doesn't have the same microstructure. But hey, we're just piercers. Who's going to even test it? We can get away with it, right? And that's happened. Yeah. Well, I I know that that's happened because that's happened to me. Like, um, I'm, I'm not the first or the last body piercer who's made a mistake ordering a company, ordering from a company. Sometimes companies pop up and they're a completely new company, or maybe they're a brand new distributor from, you know, an international company, or maybe it's a new right. line. And that, that line is advertised as like, this one meets APP standards or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen those kinds of, uh, jewelry things available and I've seen them come and go and I've, I've bought some, I've got it in and like, I've looked at it and be like, well, you know, it looks really similar, but like, why is this thing labeled differently? Or can you show me documentation? And they can't show me documentation. Mm -hmm. Um, 
when someone becomes an APP member, you have to submit certain stuff that says like, well, where are you buying your jewelry? But also like what quantities are you buying it in? Because sometimes people might make an initial investment uh, you know, of a thousand barbells or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's exactly what you'd want uh, for, for APP membership. But then six months goes by and then they realize, well, that those barbells are really expensive. This other company is saying that their stuff is fine and it costs mm-hmm. half as much. So I'm going to switch over to them. And they so there's this the constant difference. thing with APP membership where it's like, occasionally you need to send that information back in to, to verify like trust but verify that you're mm-hmm. still buying the right stuff from the right companies. And it's gotta be the same thing with the material for these manufacturers, because sometimes they might fall back and say like, well, this company's saying it's exactly what we need, mm-hmm. but without that documentation, without that due diligence, how can you really be sure? So All someone right. like me, like you can explain it for a month and I'd still be like, totally mill certificates and what, and, and like, I still don't think that I would be able to do a good enough job to verify it because at the end of the day, I'm trying to interpret a piece of paper and people can change that piece of paper, however they want to skew right. my interpretation. Well, so that's, that's where the contact information comes in. And yeah. this is when, when we see a lot of these test certificates that's been scratched off or it's been edited. So if, if you have that information and you can contact, you know, starting with who, who, turned the metal into the shape mm. and then who turned the metal into that metal that could be fed into the machine and yeah. then who melted the metal and we're not even going to get into where did the dirt come from because that's <laughs> way more complicated yeah <laughs> and that actually doesn't totally affect it because when you're doing the melting process you can get recycled stuff and all sorts yeah. of things particularly steel is very recycled and titanium is very recycled when you're when you're making titanium you have a sponge and then you're, you're chopping uh, <laughs> to get to the, the, the juicy center <laughs> and all the extra parts get recycled uh, for lower quality alloys, for um, things that don't need to be quite as precise uh, or they get blended uh, and remelted later yeah. to be more and more. Uh, it is a lossy process. Stuff instead of body jewelry. Yeah, I mean, just to make pure unalloyed titanium to get rid of all the, the little impurities that are around the site and to, to get to that center, you're, you're talking about like starting with 16,000 tons of, of material to get one ton or of, of result. It, it's, it, there's, there's a really big discrepancy about what you're starting with versus what you end up with oh, I'm uh, sure. from, from dirt to the rods. Well, like, so. like any raw material, yeah, you got to refine mm-hmm. it. So but, uh, to, to, to kind of like move into the the project now the certification project i'm sure that's been like a mountain of work because i remember when i was when i was wrapping up on my board term three years ago that was just kind of in the early phases of 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 a conversation of like what can we do to make this stuff simpler for app members but also the end user the body piercing Mm -hmm. client and having something i don't want to call it simple but having something as easy to understand as a stamp that says certified or not certified like how did that process come about and like how's how's it going so far so um we started in the late 90s with the project um basically as soon as the app got rolling um the first elected well i say the first appointed board uh started working on jewelry and we had a jewelry review committee that we started which was um basically the idea of can we just take all the jewelry that's already on the market whether we have certificates or not from them because people aren't willing to share it, can we just test it to see if it's safe? 
and what testing is required. So we went through uh, contact with laboratory folks. Uh, there, there's a company called M N A M S A MAMSA that gave us a, a uh, like a proposal for how to do this, and it was more than we could afford at the time. Mm. But it laid it out and said like these are the things that need to be done to test just to see if just the chemistry <laughs> is safe. Yeah. And so now that. All that sort of testing is rolled into consumer safety standards these days, uh, the ASTM F2999, 2923, which is all like just the, the dangerous chemicals like cadmium, nickel, and lead can't be in there and amounts over a certain threshold, et cetera. So that's sort of, a, there's a legal standard for it. We don't even have to worry too much about these days because jewelry companies should be buying from companies who are selling biomaterials who are beholden to this law. Um, course outside of certain countries they're not so what happened was we discovered we couldn't just buy a test we couldn't like buy a gold tester and test all the gold um sort of but it's not super accurate we couldn't just buy an x-ray machine and check to see if it has bumps in it we couldn't just buy uh, an xrf uh fluoroscope or we couldn't buy an induction couple plasma melting machine to be able to do spectroscopy with we couldn't buy these machines and we because we couldn't hire somebody to operate them. And we, I mean, like right. we could sort of sucker university folks into doing it for spec, like, Hey, we'd like to see if this is worth trying. Can you try yeah. it for us? So that was such lucky. a small sample size that it might not even be beneficial. Or they could just give us the one or two good pieces that they had and not, you know, they knew their yeah. 10 millimeter bars are safe, but everything below that, who knows? And they give mm -hmm. us samples. This is kind of the thing. So what we discovered was long, long, long ago, um, that we couldn't just get a kit and test, you know, like we want to see if the Swarovski gems take, have lead in them. Okay. Some of these foilbacks do. Oh crap. Uh, there is a test kit for that. You know, there are test kits for lots of things, but some of them are, you know, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars plus a degree to operate it. So what do we do? <laughs> we have to then go to standards, right? And we'd already been in checking standards. This is uh, Raquel Martin, Jeff Martin, myself, uh, Christina Blossi, uh, and a good number of people participated in this. And over the years, we just kept going and trying to find out what the standards are, um, trying to ask jewelry companies to buy only from companies that make materials that are beholden to those standards. But on the side of the APP publications, we never published how to build body jewelry, right? Mm -hmm. We never published for jewelers a pamphlet that says, these are the materials that are safe, these are the sources you can get it from. These are the places you definitely don't want to buy it from. Um, and this is unfortunately one of the problems that we had was that jewelers read the uh, materials intended for layperson. And so did regulators, unfortunately. Health departments read it. And they're like, oh, yeah, so it can meet these standards, but they didn't really have any thing more than a loose understanding of what they were. So yeah. people could sort of slide in with their, their pseudo certificated uh, things. And what we ended up with was jewelry companies that were using the layperson standards to sort of do a horseshoes and hand grenades close enough idea of what they should buy. And some of these companies were really upset. Like, why didn't you tell me that I shouldn't buy tens of thousand dollars worth of products from this particular distributor? Because well, because we're not, the APP, we're not telling you how to make your jewelry, just like yeah. the APP is not telling you how to pierce. We're giving you a set of guidelines uh, that within there, you can figure out how to do it safely. Like OSHA doesn't tell people how to do their job. It tells people what not to do. Yeah. <laughs> 
And so we came to agreement with the board and with the project uh, that we would share this information with the jewelers and with the public. So it's not teaching people how to make jewelry, but it is more the framework and guidelines of what standards we expect. These standards should be withheld, should be held up and where the standards apply and where they don't. And so that's what we've got now is the first phase where we can test biomaterials. Uh, we can get standards for the biomaterials and we can double check everything to make sure that biomaterials, meaning materials that are made for surgical implant, this doesn't cover gold yet because gold, although it does have a history in, in oral uh, surgery and, and some uh, crowns and whatnot, it's not technically an implant material. Uh, we're talking about titanium, tantalum, steel, uh, and, and other materials that are regulated for biomaterials. Uh, we can test that now. So that's done. And we've got our, the first batch of people that we're open to uh, were, were the corporate sponsors, the people who already had um, provided some information and were willing to, to try. And, and some were super enthusiastic. We've already approved a few. And I think we'll be able to prove just about all of them with just a little bit more information. Um, we haven't found anything that was like a horrible red flag so far, uh, which is really, really uh, good. Yeah. <laughs> um, unfortunately, with a lot of the companies that have uh, used the layperson's definition based on our pamphlets and our old uh, publications, they didn't know the details and they, they didn't read all the articles in the point where we described the Biomaterials Access Assurance Act, which you know, requires the biomaterials producers to be legally responsible for this, that and the other, but also requires the distributors to be legally responsible, but also puts you in responsibility if you're making jewelry and also puts you in responsibility if you're choosing the jewelry. So like, no, you don't you don't have that like deep pocket up there where you can just sue up the chain. <laughs> yeah. You're still personally liable for it. If you choose to make, uh, you know, like buy from Xander and instead of buying the, the F-136 nice titanium, you buy, uh, you know, G23 lead, <laughs> you know, G23 with, a, with impurities and then you just make it anyway. It's your, it's still your choice to make a bad yeah. decision. Um, so we got that first phase that I think is, is going smoothly. Um, we, we have some companies that we've been interacting with that during us sharing this information, like what they should be looking for in their stock, have pulled up some red flags, but those are outside the corporate sponsor. There are companies that we had previously approved uh, some of their products for, and they're like, oh, well, we've got all these certificates, and now I'm saying these are chemistry only. Mm. The, it doesn't have the mechanical properties, doesn't have microstructure tests, so I have to double check that. Uh, oh, this is from Russia or this is from China. And do those, uh, do those sources fit within this? No, nope, actually. So is there, is there a way where maybe some of the terminology can be updated or something? Because like, I know that there are really good quality manufacturers that are just made outside of North America. Mm -hmm. I don't want piercers to kind of like qualify or disqualify someone as like, well, it's gotta be American made or nothing. Right. So when you say like, you know, a Russian source or a Chinese source, like I don't want people to kind of build up like a xenophobia in their mind where they think that it's like, well, you can't trust right. these nationalities or anything, but it's just that That's they have it. different, exactly. they have different manufacturing and certification standards there that but, might meet their, their market and their standards for their production, but it doesn't not, necessarily not align with some others. Not quite. It's the trade, this is the trade agreement. And okay. what I was saying is in terms of technical barriers to trade, we've pretty much eliminate, eliminated them. 
anybody who wants to follow the recipe can do an excellent job. They can exceed it, uh, any country. Yeah. But there are only a short list of countries that are agreeing to trade with one another and hold each other liable to sure. the same degree equally. Sure. So if, but that also means that there's someone checking, you know, the whole trust but verify thing. Yes, There's exactly. someone checking over their shoulder to make sure that the standards that maybe they even in, in good faith think that they're operating under, exactly. verifying that they are operating under those standards. So that, this is part of the ISO 9001 good manufacturing practices. Like first, if we're, if we're talking about the actual person who's grinding the metal into a shape for jewelry, like that manufacturer practice, we want it to be ISO certified. We want that. We want documentation for that because we want to know that they're not going to start switching the bars and they're going to keep things organized and tracked properly because that's, yeah. there's legal standards for that. The, the second thing we want to do is if companies are building or bu buying materials from a country to sell into that country, again, those like the, the Russian National Standards Agency for all the guys, all the people in, in the Russian APP, for example, they buy Russian material because it's made for their sales, right? It's, it, mm -hmm. it is all the same standards. It's beholden to all of their medical requirements. Their, their legal requirements are taken care of. And frankly speaking, if they buy stuff from outside, um, they have the, the group agreements and whatnot, but there's no trade agreement between Russia and say, for example, Italy, mm -hmm. uh, that would allow them to buy certified material from Italy and have it be 100% equal in terms of the, the trade relation of mm -hmm. if there's a problem with it, you know, the people in Russia are going to have problem are, are going to have trouble suing uh, yeah. Italy and having them take responsibility for it. But the thing is, if they're buying from Italy, Italy is one of the 28 countries in the, the larger trade agreement, and all the other countries will pressure them into holding up their side of the bargain because nobody's going to buy from them if they're find, finding out that they're selling bad material to Russia. Yeah. So it, there are Russian producers that make rockets and things that have to be very precise or they'll explode, right? That can do wonderful things, and they have an entire market for that. There are Chinese, Chinese market is enormous. And no matter where you make jewelry, if you're making it with materials that are beholden to the standards of where you're selling it, cool. But that's really the point. It's yeah. not that China can't make jewelry for Italy or for France. It's that the French health authority has to be able to go to China and correct anything that's wrong. Yeah. And they don't have a right to go in and have any sort of authority to make a, a factory stop if they're doing something wrong, change anything. Mm -hmm. They might contract something. I mean, the, the trouble right now is there are a lot of companies that can make wonderful, precise products all over the world. Uh, like, you know, you've got huge hub in Shenzhen alone in China that's, that's selling stuff from producers all around. And if they're using materials from distributors to that hub, for example, they, they're taking things in from the port from all over. If they want to sell to India, they're taking materials from India. If they want to sell to Italy, they're taking materials from Italy. And these major medical device manufacturers are making things for spinal fusion or for uh, pacemakers or, or, or bone, bone connectors, right? all sorts of things that are biomaterials, but they're making it with materials for where they're selling it. Yeah. And then they make the same machines for China. Right. If they're doing it for China, so they so, have a domestic. You know, part of that, 
part of that whole trust but verify thing is there's a there's an aspect of legal accountability. And when yeah. you talk about all these other giant markets, you know, medical device markets and aerospace markets and all that stuff, like they have specific legal accountability, but body piercing and body jewelry isn't regulated that way almost anywhere in the world. So um, right. when it comes down to that end user, it really depends on that, that, that client being like, well, no, I don't want to buy mystery metal. I don't want to buy something that's just called stainless steel. Like I want to buy this, that, or whatever. So there's always going to be a client out there who just wants the thing that looks nice and they don't want to do the homework. There's always going to be the piercer out there that wants to sell the thing that looks nice, that doesn't want to do the homework. So when it comes to those, those classifications of people having something like this APP jewelry certification program is easy because they don't have to do the homework. You're doing the homework for them already. And you're just putting the stamp on it. And th- that's the thing. And companies who get the stamp have to continually provide their new material certificates. So we yep. keep up to date with it. And they're eager to do so because it's, it's really simple. We set it up so that they can do it fluidly. And I want to basically take all the, the work out of it for the average piercer who is really more concentrating on getting their bevel control down and making sure that their piercings are accurate and making sure that the customers come in for downsizes and getting on TikTok or wherever and publicizing for themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, I want them to have more time to do the things that are important to keep their businesses thriving. I mean, essentially the benefit of all this is piercers can make a better living. Clients can have a clearer conscience. Client comes in, they say, cool, I see you're selling jewelry from X brand and it's already been validated by the APP. So I feel confident, awesome. And then if it's you know house brand jewelry with no name or if it's some other company that they are not sure of, they can look it up real easy. They can look it on the APP list, you know, and oh yeah, well that doesn't fit. Hey, did you know that this company doesn't do that? And then if you're a person like me who had taken stuff out of the display case and was just bit by bit putting things back, we have an entire different category for things that are not made for initial piercings, yeah. right? So in that case, you're not screwed. You don't have thousands of dollars worth of stock that you're just not able to use at all Mm -hmm. because you can use it for healed piercings. So at that point, you probably don't want to use the posts, right? You probably don't want to wear a wear surface that's a mystery material. But the ends, the decorative parts, which is what people want for fancy, Mm -hmm. um, the parts that's visible. Well, so that that pops up right now. (laughs) That pops a question for me. And like, I don't want to get too far into it if it's still down the road. Like I would love to maybe revisit this with you in a a year or two years or whatever, Mm -hmm. and talk about the phase that, you know, covers more gold jewelry and whatever else. But, you know, as a, as a piercer, um, sometimes it also gets dizzying when it comes to the concept of like whitened gold and saying like, well, you know, you want it to be pretty firmly nickel free if it's a wearable surface, but if it's a, if it's an attachment, if it's just like an aesthetic piece or something like that, you know, maybe certain materials can be present in an alloy and in, in other wear surfaces, it shouldn't be present. So right. yeah, all that does get a little bit dizzying for me. So there, there is a set of standards I mentioned before, that's the ISO 10993 standards. And that's like the, can it touch me in the first mm-hmm. place? Can it touch me for a few minutes? Can it touch me for hours? Can it touch me for days? Can it touch me for the rest of my life or at least 10 years, right? Um, can it be in me? like in my ear, up my nose, or, you know, some part of my body that's not an open wound, but, you know, somewhere protected. Can it be in my eye, right? Sensitive parts of my body, like contact lenses, for example. Um, Can it be 
in there for a long time. Can it be in there if that part's already irritated, right? Like, do I need special instructions to take out my wood jewelry if my ears get irritated, right? Do I need special instructions where I can only wear this when I'm fully healed? Like there's, there's a lot of things. So it's, it's the, what do you, what is your intended purpose, right? Is it something you're going to wear or dress up like for a fancy day out? Or is it something you're going to just put in and not want to worry about? I've got clients who literally I pierced them in 1992. They're still wearing the same jewelry and I'm thrilled that it still looks nice and that they're still wearing it. Some people, they want to change their jewelry daily. Cool. Your choice. But I want to know if I'm putting something in you that literally I could see you decades down the line and not see that it's like eaten a hole in your skin or caused yeah. some sort of weird reaction or that your body has been uptaking, leaching material into your system and it caused some sort of weird brain damage or genotoxicity or, or mutagenicity or some, some other weird thing that ended up with weird lymph node problems or, or cancer or something horrible like that. So like with, with the like worst case scenario with this stuff, we start with death and dismemberment and work our way down to like, it's annoying. Mm -hmm. And so like somewhere in that spectrum, uh, we want to be comfortable that like, okay, so titanium F-136 is annoying for a certain number of people. It's six sigma and attempts like million to one chance that you're going to be annoyed by the vanadium that's in it. But we have several alternatives. You know, we can do a different alloy that has, uh, say, for example, niobium instead of uh, vanadium. That's the 1295. Um, or we could just pure titanium. We have unalloyed pure titanium F-67, right? So or we can go for a totally different material. We could use platinum. Awesome. You've got the budget, kick ass, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but that's the thing. So we want people to not feel like they're stuck with one thing, but if they only want to wear that one thing, we want to make sure that they know that it's okay for the largest amount of people possible, that for the longest amount of time possible. Um, and this is why that we, we don't just go with the, the sort of engineering standards where there's not actually that ISO 10993 testing behind it or the STM uh, standard behind it that says this specific alloy is safe for implant. Mm -hmm. um, we don't go with the 316L or the 316LVM because those are engineering standards. They're not implant standards. So if anybody ever asks, hey, is this fit for the purpose? Is it back to the, is it both safe and effective for its given purpose? Mm -hmm. um, or is this an off-label use? Like, are, did you just choose on your own as Ryan Lett to decide that material is okay because of whatever, it, at this state in your knowledge, at this state of the information available to you, it seemed appropriate. Mm -hmm. It's up to you. If you want to take that risk, that's you. Uh, and, and I'm okay with people taking risks. Like with healed piercings, a lot of us play the what can we fit in the piercing game. You know, like, I, I lived through the nineties. I've done silly things, but uh, the, the big thing is knowing that, um, it, you know, if this wooden droid I got uh, bothers me that I can switch to something, uh, I have other jewelry that I can put, put in until it calms down. And I've had bad reactions to things before. I, I had a nipple jewelry that I put in that caused it to swell and, and like the entire inside lining of my nipple just dissolved. And I had to switch to smaller, lighter implants, material because yeah. I was, you know, I was past the point I'd worn it for years and I thought I can wear whatever, you know, it'll be fine. Well, it wasn't, <laughs> so, yeah. it, you know, I felt like a truck had parked on my chest. So the, the choice is yours. You can experiment, but again, 
even with the heel piercings, know that we have standards so that if you have a problem, you can fall back on it. Like you can put your longer post in if it swells up because you bopped yourself in the lip accidentally, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just knowing that in advance. And, and that's just a tool of the piercer's tool chest. And the piercer doesn't have to have a PhD or um, an expert to refer to necessarily. They, they yeah. can look at the APP standard and go from there. And for heel piercings, well, we have a, a general standard. Again, we have the consumer safety standards, the, the F2999 and F2923 for children. Uh, those have actually been put into law in several states already. Uh, those well, are some people, some people might be familiar, you know, if you're in California, as an example, so many products have all these warning labels about, hey, there's some lead in this or, hey, there's some right. nickel in this or whatever. So I think some people are used to that depending on their region, but it's not yes. universal. Yeah. So in fact, those two standards take into account the Prop 65 California, um, like bad, bad list of things not to put in people, uh, plus things like sharp edges and, mm-hmm. and, you know, things that disassemble and things could be choked on. Um, so, you know, the, again, I would like, for example, F2999 is, it's a good, as a consumer safety standard. If I test my jewelry and say it meets F2999, that means it's probably okay for healed piercings, but it doesn't mean it's automatically usable for initial piercings. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, like it has, it has G23 chemistry. It could be F136 um, or it, it says it's F136, but it's from a country that doesn't withhold the uphold those standards or have any like uh, agreement with uh, health authorities. And they give me a chemistry test that says it meets F2999. Cool. I can use it for healed piercings. So I'm going to use their ends maybe if I feel like it. Um, and I feel like that's probably not any less safe than using gold from a small jeweler who might accidentally use um, cadmium in their their flux or something like uh, in their uh, their solder or something like that. Uh, so when we've got like the Prop 65 stuff like nickel, yeah, there there's some 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 limits. Like in the consumer safety standard committee, when when I'm listening to conversations about this F2999, it's actually some really high high um, highly educated experts who are saying, first, show me harm. Is it actually harmful? At what level is it harmful? Like how many milligrams per kilogram or whatever? What is the lethal dose? And then what is the dose where at a threshold it starts bothering people? Like, is it annoying? Is it sensitizing? And then there's an agreement that's reached as to, okay, yes, just because it has nickel in it doesn't mean you're going to explode. Stainless steel in general like Even people who drink food. soda, you can have a soda every now and then, and you're not going to get diabetes, but right. you know, after right. a certain point, it's harmful. Right. So that, that's kind of the deal is, is talking about the threshold levels. So we have these thresholds that are there based on good science. This is not an opinion. This is the, like, you will die. If you put this much in your body, <laughs> if you put half as much, it's going to make you barf. If mm-hmm. you put a lot less, it's going to make your hair fall out. And if you put this tiny little amount, most people are never, never even going to notice it. But like right above that amount, you start itching. And right above that amount, you start swelling. And it, so like that, they can find this. And that's part of the ISO 10993 series of testing. And these tests are not cheap. A jewelry company is not going to pay to get their jewelry tested. It's the foundry who's making the metal yeah. <laughs> who's paying because they have the big bucks, you know. Mm-hmm. And it, honestly, if you are a small jeweler and you have to pay for testing to to prove that a novel material that you've chosen based on your personal opinion is looks good, you're, you're going to pay a lot of money. You better have that be a, a, a very, very profitable item because you're not going to make your money back. I mean, this can mm-hmm. cost hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to do these tests to the, to the degree where you can actually say, 
reliably, I'm not going to lose my company over a problem that a customer is going to have with this. So this is, this is again, back, back to the standards. Like, why do these standards exist? Well, some people have had serious uh, liability issues with them. Sure. Uh, to the point well, where companies have folded and, and uh, you know, people have had serious bodily harm. That might be one of the reasons why there are so few companies that fall into that high quality category, because it's not something like I know that some of these body jewelry companies that we would look at today and be like, these are some of the best in the world. I know that some of those companies might have literally started in someone's garage. But Mm -hmm. today in 2022, you can't start a body jewelry company in your garage and operate at that level. Like it takes so much work as a foundation. So like I really respect some of these these manufacturers and companies and seeing the work and like, they could have just fallen back into a place of safety and be like this, this material we've been using is fine. And like, we all know companies where it's like, they, they make fine body jewelry, but they don't make Mm -hmm. fine body jewelry. You know what I mean? Like the ones that make like the really best, the best, it's this constant work and pressure and, and uh, this whole Mm -hmm. trust, but verify things. Sometimes you Mm -hmm. have to verify your own practices and your own supply chain and all that stuff. So And your you know, employees to make sure they're doing it and following through. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at, at this point, I feel like we should probably start to wind it down because I'm very much realizing that an hour and a half into this conversation, I don't, <laughs> I don't understand mill certificates one bit more, but I, I want to say that I'm really appreciative of people like you, you know, like not to like shine your ass too much, but um, you've always been that person where I've, I've always wanted to reach out to you first. So if I've ever had a question on, mill certificates, materials, safety standards, whatever. And and I think a lot of other people are in the same category. Your first instinct is, well, I'm going to send Brian a message and and see what his opinion is on it. So I appreciate your knowledge base. And I appreciate the fact that you're someone who constantly goes back and and does your own trust, but verify even on your own information. And I'm sure what you're thinking in 2022 isn't the same that you were thinking in 1992. So I appreciate your continued work because I think without you, without people like you, without Christina Blasi, without Pablo, without those people who constantly push it forward and say like, let's just, let's just make sure that our understanding level is correct and make, Mm -hmm. let's make sure that they're actually doing the things we want them to do without people like you doing the homework for us. I think a lot of us would be really lost. And I know that I would definitely be one of those people who would be completely lost without other people being able to do the homework for us. Well, what for me is super important is to offload this from being individual and not, not being a place where I, I'm personally questioned in my uh, understanding of things because I don't want to be the authority on this. I want mm-hmm. this to be a standard that people can refer to and that many people can understand and many people can participate in action Mm -hmm. Uh, because really I certainly don't want to be in the situation where I was when I started, which is um, can we do less? How long can we get away with it before something bad happens? Mm -hmm. And will we be responsible for it at that point? Or can we um, have a plausible deniability that it wasn't our fault that you didn't clean it right? Nobody told us. Hey, you moved when I pierced you. Like all the way all that nonsense. Um, so where I'm at with this is I'm content that people care about this to the degree that they do. I don't want people to have to worry about it at all. I want them to enjoy their experience as a client and as a piercer and as a jewelry manufacturer, resting assured that you can buy the right stuff from the right places and just make it into the things that you think are pretty. 
yeah. and use them. And ideally, as long as they're shiny, they're smooth, they fit together correctly, you got the right, you know, connection and the right size and proportion to the person, you're going to put a predictable result. You know, yeah. I'm going to put this thing in your ear. It's going to grow a little tissue around it. That tissue is going to grow about at the same rate and in the same texture and thickness and with the same blood vessels and nerve endings that normal skin in that area would grow or whatever tissue that we're piercing through. Not something that's like leather, yeah. <laughs> not something or just that's a big lump of scar tissue. Right, right. Yeah. And one of the things that bothered me early on, and one of the reasons that I was really interested in this is my, my first jewelry was really handmade by people who cared a lot, but didn't know much. Mm-hmm. And I wore it and ended with very thick scar tissue with very little sensation, uh, you know, a, a very uh, long time after I switched the jewelry, did that scar tissue wear away bit by bit, you know, mm-hmm. like getting rid of a callus essentially. And I, the day I could actually feel my nipple piercings again, <laughs> coming back from having healed with mystery steel, essentially, um, you know, I thought they were just, they were sensitive while they're healing. And then you just kind of lose sensation after a while, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. You know, mm-hmm. that was because I actually had lower circulation and lower nerve endings in that area. And the tissue yeah. was thicker than it should have been. And just by switching the jewelry to a different material and leaving it be for a while, I shed most of that. So yeah. that's what I would like people to avoid, you know, not having to have that experience where like, oh, hey, this isn't as cool as I thought it would be. And having to go through like a treatment to get it better. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to start off and be cool. And then, you know, that tissue that heals well is easier to stretch if they want to make piercings bigger for fun. Um, no. It should be easy. And part of part of it is uh, standing on the shoulders of giants and, you know, knowing these these ASCM and ISO folks who I've interacted with for years who have spent decades and lifetimes studying biomaterials and being able to refer to them when I have uh, questions about like, what if mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, has been has been really eye opening. Um, I, I don't want people to have to go through that whole experience. Um, and have to go and find resources. They should simply be able to buy something and feel it's comfortable yeah. and competent and go from there. Well, I, I, I love that whole concept. You know, I, I'm very much a, a lazy person and professional. Um, if I can buy something where I, I know that I can just believe in it, you know, uh, but you still have that verification side of it. Like I bought a statum because I think the statum is as good as it gets for, for a sterilizer, but still, I spore test it every week to make sure that it's working properly. So just like anything else, I think it's great to, to verify, but being able to have that APP stamp or seal of approval is I think going to help a, a lot of people. I think I didn't buy my first statum for two years because I didn't believe it could actually achieve sterilization in three and a half minutes of right. the whole time. I was like, no, it's too, no, <laughs> it's yeah. going to be too unreliable. And, yeah. you know, I had to really like get into who tested it. How do they test it? Oh my God, it actually kills the spores before the sterilization cycle even starts. Oh my God. It's like they torture test it with really disgusting, goopy things and the stuff. Don't still start dead. nerding out on statum, but, Brian. That'd be a yeah, whole other like, But that, that's the thing. Like even me, the yeah. statum nerd, I didn't even buy it because I wanted to know. Sure. And I had it, my doubts. Some, some of this anything. stuff does sound too good to be true. And the same thing can be for body jewelry or whatever else. You know, if, mm-hmm. <laughs> if somebody's selling something where they're like, yeah, that, that's fine but it's mm-hmm. suspiciously cheap, right. you know, trust, but verify. Right. And you know, the funny thing is a lot of these materials are remarkably inexpensive because they are very popular for other things. Yeah. So. Standardized materials are going to be accessible, but then it falls on to like, well, okay, then what do you do with that material? How do you handle it? How do you manufacture mm-hmm. with it? All that stuff. So it's this like, 
amalgamation of things, you know, going back to the whole analogy of cooking and recipes and whatever, and you have to understand how to apply that recipe. But um, th this helps me, I think, understand things a, a little bit better. Hopefully it helps piercers out there if, if, they're, if they have an even smaller knowledge base. You know, when it comes to education, literal, literacy, your, your interest in these subjects, and you, you got to be interested in it to kind of follow this stuff down a hole sometimes. And some people might just genuinely not have the time or the interest to even do this research. So being able to have a, a standard for body piercers that we can believe on, that we can trust, but also verify is, is, is a great advancement. So I appreciate the work. Well, thanks. And anybody can get in touch with me through safepiercing.org. Currently I'm operating as the vice president. So VPA at safepiercing.org or uh, medical at safepiercing.org goes to uh, our medical committee. The, um, I think Pablo's mostly responding to that, but we're, we're all able to answer the detailed questions if somebody really does want to uh, find out more about the subject because there's a lot more. And there are right. presentations available through the APP Learning Management System uh, on safepearson.org on the subject of materials and mill certificates where you can see pictures of mill certificates and standards and stuff like that. And uh, I also have on my piercers.com site uh, a full presentation on it as well. Great. That's awesome. Um, to give you just a little extra plug, because like, yes, the information is massively helpful to the industry. Like, as I said, like you are my, one of my primary sources when it comes to information, but also um, you really help out a lot with a lot of the, like the products that can be really beneficial. So aside from the APP talk, aside from the, the jewelry program talk, give me a quick plug for your website, because like, you know, I buy my statum maintenance stuff from you, mm -hmm. repair parts and seals, you know, uh, Optum and enzymatic mm -hmm. spray and all these things that are really beneficial. One of the most frequent questions I've been getting online lately is like, hey, I saw you mention a product in one of your videos or one of your classes. Where can I get it? So what are some of your online resources for people that are maybe looking for different products and materials? So um, I have a, a website where I do reviews of things and, and talk about things. Uh, that's my brianskelly.com website. Well, you can also do it without the vowels, brnskl.com. Uh, and that's also got my web store on it, which has uh, Statum and uh, Hydrum, which are uh, sterilizers and automated washers. It has products for disinfection like Optum and uh, for instrument cleaning like our all-in-one UPS. And uh, a lot of other fun things like uh, anodizers and steam cleaners and things that I use on a regular basis for piercing fun, uh, making jewelry more fun and making uh, lots of colors and stuff. And also teach classes on that as well. Uh, I also have piercers.com for sort of worldwide uh, products that are available for Europe, UK, et cetera. And uh, also do statum.us, uh, or if you want, you can go straight to the statum shop, statum.shop. And uh, that's S-T-A-T-I-M, as in Mary, that will get you there. And uh, there's a lot of health things. These are basically just products that I uh, selected based on how useful the benefits are for piercers. You know, disinfectants that don't leave a funky residue that's going to cause a bad reaction. You know, it is, <laughs> you used to use quaternary ammonia compounds and you wash with that. And then if you ever go to bleach something, you now made chlorine gas and we're on World War One. Um, so, you know, I, this one's, uh, it doesn't leave nasty residues. It has a peroxide base, so it, it doesn't eat things, uh, but it does kill germs and get rid of them. Uh, the enzyme product was helpful for getting gunk off jewelry. It's also, I think that's one of the best cool. products that, that I use in my studio. And a lot oh, of nice. people overlook it. Whenever I do the safe practices class, I tell people like, you don't want a liquid soak and you don't want to be transporting that liquid soak. If you can oh, apply yeah. it as a foam, but then you can also mm -hmm. end up using that same product as like 
you know, the, the product you're using in your ultrasonic or the product yeah. you're using in a, in a soak in a sterilization area. Like it's yeah. a great product, universal processing solution. I love it. Yeah. That, that's a handy enzymatic detergent and it's got a really high dilution rate. It's a quarter ounce to a gallon. So you mm -hmm. get one little tiny bottle and it makes you many, many, many days worth of useful solution. And uh, yeah, the, the foaming product is nice because it, it keeps uh, fibrin and uh, album and all the, all the blood and body fluids from drying and hardening yeah, on your tools. All the stuff it's, that would create biofilm. Yeah. And it, it's safe, safer to transport because you're not going to splash or spill. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a handy product and it's nice because it, it's, uh, it's also usable for uh, automated washers. Uh, it's also usable for uh, ultrasonics and for soaks. And even if you're hand scrubbing things for things that are complicated tattoo stuff, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I really like that. And I've started uh, dealing with uh, a number of different kinds of ultrasonics for some tiny ones for jewelry and uh, bigger ones for, for uh, instrument reprocessing. And uh, I got that Sycan ultrasonic. I love it. Yeah, cool. Yeah, those are fun. Same manufacturer is making little ones for jewelry for me now. And uh, the, uh, the automated instrument washer, the Hydrum, which is nice. A lot of people are getting those. It's kind of like a dishwasher for your tools where you basically push things, push, put them in, load, push, go, and it automatically dishes the detergent. It washes, rinse, dries, and disinfects everything. So basically mm -hmm. things just are ready to go. Just need to put them in your sterilizer, um, whether packaged or unwrapped and run right then. Um, it's on my uh, wish list. Of course, there's a couple of new statum related uh, sterilizers that we have. We have uh, uh, another generation of uh, the G4 has been released recently. It's got a different cover slightly and uh, slightly different software. Um, there's a new uh, 6,000 CC unit that's like sort of in between the size of the 2,000 and 5,000, but more volume than both of mm -hmm. them uh, in terms of the footprint. And that's pretty cool. We've got that in Europe now. That's made for packages. Um, a lot of people got the Statum 2000 and it's really fast and they use that for day to day for piercing uh, things out of the display case or, or items for immediate use. And they also got a 5000 because that way you have like similar maintenance, but now you've got a bigger one that you can use for packages also. Yeah. But the 6000 is for people who use lots of packages, but not so many that they need like a big honk and autoclave. Like sure, they don't need like a full on like Bravo or something. Yeah. Right. And, you know, you don't need 17 liters of space. You know, mm -hmm. this is six liters and it's got racks for lots of packages and it's really fast. We're talking like 27 minutes for, for dry equipment coming out of it, which is faster than the 5000 can do. So, um, yeah, yeah, that that's all pretty exciting. Um Apart from that, uh, yeah, steam cleaning for jewelry, pretty cool. A lot of jewelers do that themselves and you don't have to do it yourself. But if you, you know, manipulate polish or like if you anodize jewelry, it's nice to be able to polish it off if you make a mistake or if it's a color that you want to change. Mm -hmm. And then steam cleaning uh, melts away the polishing compound and blasts it off, which is pretty cool. So we have steam cleaners uh, and of course anodizers. So people can both clean their jewelry uh, to that ASCM F66 uh, standard and make cool colors for complement or contrast for uh you got all, all, all you, your your fingers in a lot of pies yeah yeah it's good it's fun. uh uh all right well i appreciate you taking the time especially with you being on the other side of an ocean and having a family and you know various businesses and all that so i appreciate you taking the time for me it's a pleasure yeah family's being being calm and making me cool things to show uh, there's a lego train being assembled in the background right now nice cool <laughs> All right. Well, um, it was good talking with you, Brian. And, um, you know, let's let's chat more, you know, as the, the certification process advances, keep me in the loop and, uh, you know, I'll update people or, or bring you back on to talk more about it in the future. Will do. Yeah, I'm excited. Our next phase is gold. So uh, nice. it will be glass. 
cool. Great. <laughs> all right. Thanks for talking to me, Brian. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate all the work you put into it. You can tell when uh, somebody's passionate about a, a subject, but uh, it's also really important that somebody who is passionate about a subject shares that information with the rest of their community, with the rest of their, their industry to, to help everybody move forward. I think some of us might know body piercers or people we've encountered in our lives where, yeah, they are a, a subject matter expert, but they're not really willing to, to share that information. Uh, maybe they kind of hoard it because they want to succeed and they don't really want to help other people succeed. Brian and, and lots of others in the industry are so inspiring because um, they, they have succeeded. They have reached a certain level of success and they want other people to, to get there also and they want to share information. So uh, Brian has been a, a really big inspiration to me throughout my my personal career, my, my professional career. Uh, and that means that I also want to share the information and the, the access that I've had. And, uh, you know, Brian Skelly is, is one of the people that um, kind of gave me that, that sort of line of thinking when it, when it comes to the information you have. You can't just hang on to it all yourself. It's your responsibility as a, as a professional to be engaged with the community and try to share that information wherever you can. So thanks, Brian. Thanks for all your hard work. Thanks to everybody else who's working on this jewelry certification project. There are a lot of people uh, that, not just Brian, you know, the entire board of directors and lots of other committee members that are putting in a lot of work for this stuff. So thank you very much. Um, how do you feel about mill certificates and, and understanding jewelry material at the end of a, a nearly two-hour podcast? And if you don't fully get it, don't worry. I'm right there with you. Uh, we can keep learning. We can keep moving forward. But luckily, there are some other people that are making programs like this that are a little bit easier for us to understand. So thanks a lot, Brian. Thanks to everybody else involved. And thanks uh, to you for, for listening to this really long podcast. I'll be back next week with some more stuff for you. Thanks. For more information about the show, visit piercingwizardpodcast.com or like Piercing Wizard Podcast on Facebook. For more info about your host, visit precisionbodyarts.com or search Ryan PBA on Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. If you enjoy the show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. Music by Benny B. Blanco. Show copyright 2017, Precision Body Arts, LLC. All rights reserved.